2: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC.
3: Hi, I'm Jordan King and you're listening to Formula Nerds Podcast. It's-
2: Welcome to the Cut to the Race podcast. Today on the show, we have a very special guest, but before I introduce him, uh, we have Michael on the show. How are you, Michael? I'm good, thank you. I'm good. First time?
0: First time for everything. Welcome along. Uh, We have Dan, the Bottas fan. How are you? I was wondering if you were still going to say that, given we're not talking about anything to do with Bottas today but yeah I'm very good thank you. I had to that's how people know
2: you now. We have a special guest by the name of Jordan King how are you sir? Yes I'm good thank you how are you? Yes I'm great thank you and um, for our listeners who don't know who you are can you explain yourself in in one sentence for us?
3: As a racing driver I am probably quite a diverse racing driver in in the sense I've I've raced in Uh, LMP1, LMP2, IndyCar, Formula 2, tested Formula 1, so I've done a little bit like that. Uh, As an actual person, I'm just an avid sports fan in general.
2: I was just thinking when I said the one sentence thing, that was a little bit unfair because of all the different things that you've done. Um, So can you tell us a bit about your career today? I know you've just told us a little bit, but how have you actually got to where you are today?
3: Uh, well, I think if, if we go back a bit bit further, I, I always go back a little bit further than than motorsport. Uh, I always wanted to be uh, a sports person from, you yeah, know, he'd speak to my dad. It was like, as soon as I could walk, I was already catching and kicking and throwing balls. So uh, as long as I can remember, I've loved sport, I've enjoyed sport, and I've wanted to be involved in sport in some manner. Uh, like i suppose a normal child if there is such thing uh, i played rugby football cricket i suppose for people around in other countries maybe that's not the normal three sports that you play but uh, obviously in, in the uk they're the main three uh, but you know i've i've sailed i've skied i've i've done i've done all that stuff so yeah i was always into my sport <laughs> and when i was 11 years old i went to a, a rive and drive indoor karting place uh, not far from down the road from where i live now actually and uh, yeah called mr karting they they've just moved due to covid but uh, enjoyed myself and uh, I, I suppose i should say my sister actually beat me first time but i put it down to the fact she was older and in the bigger carts so we'll, uh, we'll 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 accept that one as part of it but yeah from then from there on uh, you know, it was that kind of year that everyone went karting for their birthdays and did a little bit uh, here and there. And, and the owner of the place, Alan, said to my dad, you know, you've you've been here half a dozen, a dozen times now. You know, if you want to do a bit more, this is kind of the next step. So my dad looked into it and then, yeah, started started karting from there. And to skip forward a few years, you you'd go up through the karting ranks and won my first race. And as soon as you kind of win your first race... You realise you've got the bug, um, and uh, then step into cars, and then you do the same thing again. You've kind of go back to square one and work your way up the car ranks until you get as high as you can, basically. And and that, in short, is probably how I got myself into into motorsport. And uh, yeah, why you
0: know why sport was where I leant on from from a young age. So when you were racing in Formula 3, Formula 2, karting any of the junior categories, was there a driver that you looked up to, whether it was an F1 driver, an IndyCar driver?
3: No, no, I've... I've yeah, this sort of question is been asked a lot um, within people within sport and also just people from out of sport. I don't tend to have idols in, in that sense. Yeah, I think the the innocence of a child, my first probably idol was, uh, David Beckham and um, playing football, you know, up until 15 years old, I was still missing, uh, races to, to play, uh, football and um, for my local club and, and rugby. And actually the week before I uh, decided to, uh, stop playing rugby, um, to, uh, uh yeah, to kind of be full-time on, on the racing, I, I broke my collarbone. So, uh, so yeah, that confirmed to me which one I wanted to do. Um, it's a bit of a slight tangent, sorry, but yeah, actually involved in motorsport. No, I, I've never really had a, an, an actual idol that I've, I've looked up to, you know, people that I admire in general in life, I think, um, you know, people who have a, achieved great things and not just in one aspect, uh, in in multiple aspects, you know, someone that comes to mind like Seb Coe, for example. Uh, you know, not only did he achieve some some great you know running feats, he's then carried on and heading up the IAAF now. Uh, you know, some businessmen I'd like to say, you know, kind of my grandparents and and my father are also you know idols in a, in a different sense of who you look up to. But yeah, never particularly had someone other than kind of my childhood innocence that, that you like, oh, you know, you, you want to be like sort of thing is you, your own. Well, I've always found I'm my own person. And uh, I suppose in motorsport, if you can pay yourself someone. Most of the time you end up racing against them at some point.
1: In racing itself, there have been some really weird and wonderful sponsorship partnerships um, that we've seen through from the prodigy guys in motorbikes um, and down to yourself racing with DC Jackie Chan. I think. Did you ever get to meet him? What was that partnership like? How did that evolve, and how did that come about in terms of um, a racing relationship?
3: Uh, no, never, never actually met um, Jackie Chan himself. <laughs> uh, I, I'm not sure which races he came to, but he never came to the ones uh, I was I was involved with. Um, but yeah, that that relationship to I suppose jump through a few hoops quickly uh, was. Uh, there's a team in the in the UK called Jota. Uh, I'm sure you've you've heard of it. You know, very successful uh, endurance racing team, uh, and they ran that project uh, for a guy called David Cheng and Jackie Chan, and they were the ones kind of heading it up. So uh, yeah, Sam Hignett at Jota um, is I suppose the the man on the ground who was behind that project. You know, now they're running uh, a Dugonia I am with Sean Galile and. Um, Antonio Felix da Costa Anthony Davison uh, in another car I can't remember who the is it Gonzalez and the third third driver in in the other car so yeah they've now still got two cars but they're uh, you know they they're, they're funded by um other projects that's really cool
2: you've already explained that you've done quite a few things in your time now um, what would you say has been sort of your greatest achievement uh, and t- tell us why i think wow well, in, in motorsport, that, that's a hard one. Um, the... I've got to just, just say to our listeners that can't see you, uh, behind you is the biggest trophy cabinet I've ever seen. <laughs> um,
3: so, yeah, which one's your favourite and why? Uh, well, out of... Um, I've got a little... Not the one that's behind me, um, next to my desk. I've actually got a few framed things... Uh, this is kind of my achievements. Um, and there's only actually two motorsport things on there that are my achievements. There's uh, one is all my passes from when I drove an F1 car. Uh, so I've got those those all framed. And the other one is my first ever win back in 2007, I think it is. I could quickly run and, and tell you the exact date. Uh, but that was my first ever win. And it was 11 months after I started uh, racing uh, properly. Uh, and to name a few names on there that you might know, you know, like Jake Dennis, uh, Alex Albon. Um, you yeah, know, so we were all all 10-year-olds, or all, well, I would have been 12 then, I think, actually. Maybe they were a little bit younger than me. Um, but yeah, that was that was the first ever win, and actually, if you look at it, probably best part of five or six people um, on that grid as 10 to 12-year-olds have all gone on to racing and some really good things. So yeah, that, that's kind of my first... Uh, first win has been the greatest achievement because you start from nothing. When you start from nothing to to get to a a winning level and against people that now you know were good were good back then, but they've been confirmed in in what they've what they've achieved since then. Uh, and then obviously my F one passes they're the only two kind of achievements I've got in a more personal section. As you say behind me, I've got. Uh, I think I counted them the other week, with 130 trophies, um, or 129, maybe I've rounded it up slightly oh to God. lie. But, uh, yeah, so to pick one of those, you know, is very hard. From, from an actual win that was another kind of standout, I think, performance and a moment, was winning the British Grand Prix in uh, GP2. Because yep. I had, you had like 40 of my sponsors and partners there and family and friends, and it kind of really showed how far... Uh, I'd come, you know, everyone that supported me financially along the way with partnerships and sponsorships were there. Um, And then, you know, family and friends who supported me, uh, I suppose, more physically and emotionally were there. And it was, yeah, it was just a really cool weekend and uh, one of those that you'll, you'll remember.
2: Uh, I've got to be honest with you I remember it I was there I was cheering you on I, I remember it like it was yesterday which is uh, it, it's it's crazy and, and now we look at you and you're the simulator, simulator driver for Alpine F1 um, what for our
3: listeners what exactly does that role involve? So the, the role within Alpine I'm, I'm not the only one that does the role uh, they have their academy drivers which they lean on quite a bit Um, So Christian Lungard, I think, is their main one that they lean on from within their academy. Um, And then there's also myself and Oliver Rowland, the the two kind of shoe-ins, I suppose. Um, Over the winter, it's very much (laughs) pure development. I know that sounds sounds silly, but going through all all the future stuff, um, what's in the pipeline for a week, ahead what's in the pipeline for a month ahead what's in the pipeline for six months ahead or even a year um and yeah the the you get one week is a, one department kind of send you a load of stuff and then another week is another department send you a load of stuff i think we'll be careful what i'm actually allowed to how to say to you guys um <laughs> don't worry about that <laughs> yeah uh but then, so like this weekend, I was on, on the sim doing the race support for them. So then that's very actually kind of the here and now, trackside support, send us all the stuff, we're then back at the factory, going through all of their data, correlating it, doing setup changes, trying to maximize everything we can to send it back to the track. So there's actually quite a lot of you know energy goes into the process back at the factory to try and make the cars just that one or two tenths faster at the racetrack.
1: And how do you find that the crossover comes, because obviously you're a development driver for Formula E as well, um, how do you find the two disciplines kind of mix? Are you, is, there, is there anything that you can carry from one to the other, or is it a very separate discipline? Because I know Formula E is very new. Uh, well, it's not very new, but it's still very young. It's in its infancy, I would say. How do you find that as a term to Formula One?
3: they are quite a bit different um well fundamentally you just look at monaco you know they were 20 seconds a lap difference um i don't actually see that as kind of how slow Formula E is i see it more as how fast formula one is you know formula one is ridiculously fast these days um you know even on the sim sometimes you're like this is just silly corners that should be more of a corner and not corners anymore um Whereas you know Formula e now, they're making really big progress for, for Gen Gen three generation three car. Uh, they're going up to four hundred and fifty kilowatts. If I get that right, I'm sure someone out there will tell me I'm wrong. Um, but you know, a lighter car and uh, a bit more downforce, a bit more grip, and more power. So you know, they're going to start getting really quite quick, uh, which is I think good. Um, but then also, it's all about the the electric tech. Yeah. Um, as from a driving standpoint you know the fundamentals are the same you've got a steering wheel your bum's in a seat and you've your two feet uh, um, are yeah, uh, right. pressing pedals so yeah you're turning left and right and you get oversteer and understeer so, so that side of things is it's very similar but then the process is completely different. You don't have gears in Formula E, for example, where you you obviously got eight in uh, in Formula One. But actually, the driver load in Formula E is probably quite a lot higher, just because there's so much other things going on. Uh, but then physically and mentally, it's probably more tiring in F1, just because of the speed. You know, your brain has to work seven times faster just to. Keep up with the images that are flashing past your eyes. Yeah, where Formula you know, is a bit slower, but there's much more going on. You're changing a lot more. You're managing a lot more. So, yeah, fundamentally they're the same. It's it's a race car, but then also, you know, driving a race car versus driving a car on the road. It's fundamentally the same, but they're completely different things. If you know what I'm trying to say. Yep. Sure. Yes,
2: yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was I think it was about a month ago we were talking to Sam Bird on this podcast and he was saying the biggest sort of challenge that he's had going from um naturally aspirated engines into uh, Formula E was the, the the regeneration and actually it's it's not about how fast you're going in Formula e, it's about how much speed you don't lose. Um
3: do do you find that in what you're doing? Uh yes, you know, the development stuff that I'm doing is not so lap time sensitive because I'm not qualifying. I'm not, you know, not not racing against people. So I'm not yep. quite as lap time sensitive and it's very much about the efficiency and how easy it is to drive, you know, what changes we can make and all of that sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, I think as Jeremy Clarkson once said on Top Gear was... Uh, um, the best way to be fuel efficient is just don't brake so let's all just drive around without pressing the brakes and and in theory that's it you're in the road car yeah um you know when you're trying to get more miles per gallon actually when the person in front of you brakes, it's really frustrating <laughs> and <laughs> and yeah you've got to try and be as smooth as possible going sideways you're losing energy you want the energy to go forward which is the quickest way you know in in, in formula one normally aspirated engine well not they're not normally aspirated but you know they've got fuel um, to just burn and actually burning an extra kilo of fuel throughout a race doesn't harm the efficiency of your lap time so actually a little bit of wheel spin doesn't matter but actually in Formula E that's wasted energy um, you know when you, when you view something as as energy it's the same way you know we're all insulating our homes now and uh, trying to make boilers more efficient it's it's the same concept as as all of that but you just flipped over to a, a race car where you don't want to waste energy you can regen as much as you can uh, try and break as little as possible roll as much speed through the corner and um, and don't go sideways or slide the car
2: so are you are you that guy that wakes up with 100 percent on his iphone and by the end of the day
3: you want one percent just before you put it back on charge um i would say i'm that sort of guy because i i'm Probably uh, a little bit OCD in that sense that I'll I'll judge myself all the way throughout the day and ration my, my usage to, to make sure I get there. But yeah, I don't think that's got anything to do with formulary. I think that's just my character. <laughs>
0: um, as we've already, already alluded to throughout the podcast, you've raced in all different series. Your trophy cabinet behind you proves that. But if you had to pick one car from one of the series, which is your favourite that you've ever driven? And then also, which one is the most physically demanding? Because obviously they're two very different things.
3: Yeah, that's that's a tough question. I think purely from the basis that every car has been great to drive for different reasons. Um, You know, for me, driving a Formula One car was amazing and it was a life. You know, life target and a a lot of sacrifice and energy had gone into getting myself there. Um, But it probably wasn't the best car to drive because everything I ever did and it was testing. And, you know, sometimes you've got 40 kilos of fuel on board and then you're on old tires. And, you know, you don't have a pure kind of, you just go out, test, drive as fast as you can. Um, I only ever did one lap. Uh, I think where I was below 30 kilos of fuel I had soft tires on all the softest tires on that weekend uh, and turned up to one of the the better engine modes Um, and that was the first time in my career that I actually uh, well excuse my French in the helmet went oh shit this is fast (laughs) you know (laughs) this is the only time I've ever actually gone that's you know like whoa you know that's that that's quick and and even you know as a a child coming up you first jump into something bigger never did you you know go full throttle and you're like oh this is actually almost scaring me um so you know formula one from that sense is is amazing uh from a one lap side of things actually you could get a really nice car really really nice to drive and extract performance out of the old formula 3 proper but what i would call proper formula 3 because that's what i did um you know, really high downforce a little bit low on on power and you could just get a really nice aero balance for that one uh similar with gp2 and um, whatever it was a 2012 car i think it was a 2013 car something like that uh, when i was doing it in, you know 15 16 you could get a quite a nice balance from car and that was that was nice and the engine was was really good um, so they were, you know, they were quite nice to drive over, over one lap, but then you mentioned kind of physicality and, and everything. Then IndyCar was, you yeah, that's cool. It's 750 horsepower, I think, but they're real racing engines, you know, two manufacturers fighting against each other. It's not a spec engine. So, you know, they were, they were sharp. They were, they were racy engines, which were really nice to drive. Um, the only downside with that car it was quite heavy you know, slow corners, it was really hard to get a nice balance and be able to rotate the car nicely and and get an exit. But for that one lap in qualifying with new tyres and low fuel, it was, it was a real nice drive. And they're always on strange places, you know, tight, bumpy street circuits. So actually from a, a challenging standpoint, it was, it was really nice to do. And growing up in Europe, all the tracks were new to me as well. So as a, as a personal challenge, that was really good. Um, but then you go to you know LMP1, LMP2. You know this is a long, long answer. Um, you know they're very similar cars, not massively different, just a bit bit difference in performance. Um, they were quite nice to drive. You could get a really nice balance with the car. Um, you you could extract quite a lot and with it being endurance. The tyres lasted quite a long time. You could lean on them. You could abuse them and and not get too much kind of. Uh, punishment from it and the racing is really cool you know when you wake up at 2am in the morning to jump in a car in the middle of the night and it's freezing outside and you've not really slept for more than 10 minutes like it's it's a cool it's a cool thing to do and it's a cool thing to drive and you know you go from scorching weather down to midnight and yeah it's, it's, so I, I think it's a really hard one to say that one car is so much better. They've they've all got good things and bad things
0: about them, if you know what I mean. So you mentioned sort of the heaviness of Indy cars around slower corners. Does that in any way link to F1? What are the big differences between the two series in terms of, from your perspective, being in the cockpit?
3: Well, you remember when I drove Formula One, back in 15, 16, was it? 15, 16? Um, Yeah, they're quite a bit different to what they are today and the cars are heavier today but they've probably also got 30 percent more downforce bigger tires more power you know they're the same engines but they've probably got an extra 150 horsepower now they've managed to extract out of them i don't think when i drove them they were over uh 900 and i think now they're creeping up to about a thousand um i might be wrong they might have been over 900 when i drove them but either way they've extracted a bit more performance out of them um Well, IndyCar, you know, it was a good 200 horsepower less and actually probably a little bit heavier. Um, But it wasn't, it was only a turbo. It wasn't a hybrid. Uh, So the power delivery was quite different. Um, And you didn't have all the funky gadgets that you do on a Formula One car that makes it nice. Um, It was a bit more raw. So from a driving experience, it was really cool because you had to hustle the car and really had to work hard. Where Formula One, although the lap time, you know, you put Formula One versus IndyCar, they, well, around Cota, I think they were like 15, 20 seconds quicker, you know, they, they're in a different league, Formula One. Um, but they're kind of too nice to drive. Um, yeah, from pure performance, as a race driver, you want to go quick through the corners. And going flat through Puon at Spa is just ridiculous how you can even get you yeah i went i did about two laps flat in formula three and um, when i had a headwind uh, on new tires way back when and that was 250 horsepower and felt like oh, this is you know this is quick and now they're going flat with a thousand horsepower it's just stupid they well it's not stupid it's just really cool <laughs> um and uh you know indycar a bit different you know it's it's lower lower downforce still a very high downforce car for what it is 750 horsepower a little bit less but very punchy very racy engine um but yeah as you said just a heavy car it was just a bit labored um i suppose the way you could describe it for the viewers is probably like driving a one series bmw and then going into a defender you know that it's just a bit lazier, a bit heavier, takes longer to rotate the car, a bit longer to stop the car. It's just not quite as, as sharp, purely from the fact that, you know, it's got an extra 100 kilos. You put a backpack on and sprint down the road with 10 kilos in it, it feels slow. You take the backpack off, you're quicker again. You know, it's it's as simple as that, really. Indy 500's got to be up there as one of one of the best ones. Oh, up, as, right? as a sporting event, as a sporting event, yeah. Uh, that's... You know, when you're involved in a sport, I don't see it as a as a sport in the same way I see rugby or football. You know, yeah. for me, I would be waking up at stupid o'clock to watch the rugby World Cup final and and do everything I can to like get a ticket to the final or whatever. You know, I I engage with it as a pure fan. Where with motorsport, yeah. for me, is not like that. Um, and it's very much a job. It's very much a, it's a process to achieve something. Um, so you disconnect the emotional part quite a lot. You you lose, you do lose it. And I think that's, you know, when I actually got myself to Formula One, I almost had to stop and just take a breath and pinch myself and go, yeah, as, sure. as a child, if you put me here now, I'd be like wetting myself. So to actually kind of re-engage that emotion is quite... Um, it's quite a different thing. I think you see that with sportsmen. When they do finally achieve what they do, they then do break down. Or if they fail, they then break down in a different way. Um, And I I think I probably was guilty of of doing the same thing. Um, And it wasn't until kind of after I did the Indy 500 that you realise at what level that is on a global scale. You know, they're a single-day sporting event it has got the most attendance in the world. They have over 300,000 people. if someone had said to me I'm getting goosebumps like thinking about it now and if you said to me as a 10 year old oh you'd walk out to Wembley with 90,000 people watching you play football I would be like this is the world's greatest thing but yeah I did it to three times that in my my respective sport so it's it's a strange feeling when you're actually so engrossed in something and you don't actually appreciate what it means to you personally but also what it means to lots of other people out there and I suppose it's quite a naive and, and selfish I suppose actually arrogant way of uh, way of looking at it because you get so engrossed in the process and wanting to achieve more and more and more you actually lose the realism of what you're doing in, at, at the time that's really interesting because
1: I love the Indy and the Indy 500, you look at it and from a crowd point of view, that's it. That's like the pinnacle. It's like that's, that's it's a sporting really... point of view. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So to hear like the driver's point of view on it and to how you can remove yourself from that and to be able to remove yourself, that's really, really interesting.
3: Don't get me wrong. When you're standing on the grid and they've got B2 bomber flying over and fireworks <laughs> no going sure. off and 300,000 people cheering, like it is a buzz. Yeah, <laughs> and sure. You do realize what's going on, but you really have to switch that, that brain off when you're getting in the car. And like you're driving down 240 miles an hour into Turn 1 with 33 other cars and 200,000, 300,000 drunk Americans shouting at you. It's like <laughs> you, with, a, with a wall only three meters away, you've got to kind of be process driven, otherwise the whole thing gets a little bit overwhelming. So you, you've, you've driven in lots of different
2: formats as well. So you've done the, the sort of the sprint races and you've done the 24 Hours of Le Mans. You've done all of this. How, how, which ones really excite you? Because they are
3: completely different, aren't they? For me, it's actually just competing. You know, even when I have my weekends off, I go and do triathlons and run for my local athletics club. Although it's, you know, amateur sport and you know, I'd be doing well to be able to go and run at a national level. I, I enjoy just the competition um, in everything I do. You know, as a kid, my parents said, you know, the only way we could ever get you to do anything was make it a competition. You know, if we were going into the car leave for the day and my dad had forgot his jacket and he'd be like oh I forgot a jacket and you know mum's like we'll go in and get it he's like oh I can't be bothered and they just went oh you know what oh, Jordan do you want to get a jacket and I'm like no we will time you so then off I run <laughs> you know so, so <laughs> it's for, for me for me it just it's competition um and uh, with the motorsport UK um and they had the kind of team UK elite program and we were in Chamonix with um a load of the drivers and Jack Harvey was on my team and we were abseiling down this, down this thing and, uh, down the cliff. And he was like, I have never seen someone that's so competitive, Like you literally would have killed yourself just to win getting down that <laughs> mountain. I was like, well, yeah, like I've got to win. <laughs> um, so although each, you know, each thing has its own excitement, um, it's the competition you know endurance Mm. stuff is mega and actually from a personal challenge it was quite new to me um and exciting and a different challenge because it's not just kind of completely flat out for that hour Mm. you're flat out like an hour and 40 minutes so you have a massive dump of adrenaline you get out the car you have an hour and a half two hours off you've got to like recover and go again have another massive dump of adrenaline so actually probably from getting the you know the the chemicals that make me happy (laughs) um it was really good because you get a massive dump of it every couple of hours where with the sprint racing you just get one real large uh you know large dose of it once a day um So, yeah, so from that side, the endurance racing is probably better for me as a person. (laughs) Um, My dad once said, uh, you know, back much younger, um, you know, crashed out of of the race, you know, on lap two or something. And he used to say that I was unbearable for the rest of the day because I just hadn't released that that energy. You know, you build yourself up and then it's like you stop, but you've then still got all this energy up here and you don't have the kind of the achievement at the end to release it all so yeah for me it's it's just being competitive i
2: think on i think on was it on your le mans race where forgive me for talking about this but you was it 195 laps and then uh was it a dnf
3: yeah we had a um fourth gear decided to explode um so one bit went forward went through the gearbox into the engine another bit went out the side um of the gearbox casing uh and the third bit stayed in the gearbox just rattling around churning everything into soup um so wow. yeah, that was that was hour 14 um and i just had Yikes. my 20 minute 20 minute nap uh i think it was 3 a.m in the morning roughly speaking um and i'd yeah i was got my stuff on and uh ricky taylor was due to come into the pits that lap and then oh. I just heard on the radio, he's like, I've got no gears, got no gears. He rolled back into the pits and they took the engine cover off, and it was, uh, yeah, it wasn't pretty.
2: Were you unbearable for the rest of that day?
3: <laughs> um, probably, yeah, <laughs> probably. Even though, you know, when well, I, I, I went to go to sleep and I fell asleep and got about two hours sleep and then woke up at, you know, whatever it was, 6 a.m., and then didn't go back to bed until that night, but I hadn't slept since. In a Saturday morning at seven a.m., so there was obviously still a lot of uh, a lot of juices flowing around in my system because yeah. I didn't get much sleep until uh, till Monday night. I'm starting to understand you a bit now. I think yeah,
0: <laughs> you're you're a very experienced man when it comes to racing. You know, you've spoken about even how Formula Three 2 has changed since you were in it. So, if I had a little figurative motorsport time machine that could take you to any era of racing to race in any discipline. Where would you go? Uh,
3: I would say 2004, five Formula One, when Ooh. they were, what, V10s. They sounded lovely. But they were only about 600 kilos, the car, so they were stupidly light. You know, today they're up at, what, 850, 900? They're quite heavy today. Don't quote me on that. That's, that's a rough, rough guesstimate. <laughs> um, but, you know, yeah, 04, 05, that kind of era, they were V10s. Uh, stupidly light, really small as well. When you see pictures of the new cars versus the cars then, you know, they're half the size. Uh, and there was a load of
0: cigarette money in the sport. So drivers got paid a big wage. So that's good. <laughs> when uh, in Abu Dhabi last year, when Alonso was doing his title winning yeah, demonstration exactly, that in that Renault. 06, that it? 07. Was, yeah, it was wasn't it? Yeah, it's just beautiful. Anything around that era yeah. is the right answer. Yeah. So, bada. Well yeah, yeah.
2: So, if you could, um, you've spoken about which era you would drive in. Um, you've obviously driven in a heck of a lot of tracks around the world, probably more than most racing drivers have. Um, can we have your top
3: three? Uh, no, because I don't have any. Oh, um, no, I don't. Don't have a favourite track. Uh, again, this is this is normally a question everyone asks, and, and I, honestly, I don't. I, I really don't. You got some that you you do enjoy a little bit more than others. Um, But, you know, I don't mark off ones in the calendar and go, I can't wait to get there. Um, If you were to pressure me, I would probably give you a list of the last three tracks that I won at, because you have a better memory of, (laughs) you know, better memory of those tracks, but they're not ones that I
0: particularly prefer over anyone else. I suppose each track is good in its own right for a variety of things so I yeah, suppose they're
3: all a challenge for their own their own reason um, you know some of the most challenging circuits I ever raced on were the street circuits in America you know where they were bumpy and you know you'd come out bruised covered in bruises just from bouncing around in the cockpit um, I would say lower on the list of, of challenges and ones you enjoy are probably the more modern Uh, tracks that have been made by I think it's an Austrian is he Austrian or German the guy that makes them just to not say his name Uh, a few nodding heads so you know what I'm talking about yeah they're just a bit boring really aren't they there's just not a lot going on Uh, and and the old school ones are normally the better ones because the curbs are funky and there's the bumps and you know I remember Hungara Ring used to have a couple of little bumps in a few areas and you you had to touch them in certain ways and manipulate the car over them and that was just a really good challenge when they're completely mill pond smooth there's not that extra challenge there um so you maybe enjoy driving on the ones that are a bit more challenging a bit more just because it's harder and i like a challenge but yeah i can't say i prefer them more than uh another one
1: gravel trap or no gravel trap
3: gravel trap yeah
1: thank you bit of a topic of the moment that one
2: isn't it
3: <laughs> yeah it is yeah,
1: yeah.
3: <laughs> well, i just don't get it just put gravel traps everywhere yeah.
0: no i don't get it either. solves track limits doesn't it? it
3: solves track limits and it's it's more of a thrill like it's no fun going through a corner You're like oh if i have a little snap of oversteer I'm, i'll just drive off like yeah. it's it's not as difficult is it yeah. No,
2: I, I, I totally agree with you. And, you know, there's been all this discussion recently and I think it even got to putting an extra line on the track. I'm like, no, well, don't put the first one there in the first place. What's, what's the point if
3: we're not going to- As I always say, no other sport in the world seems to struggle with its boundaries. So why are we the only one that can't seem to get a grip on it? Hmm. We're, we're all in agreement that the white line's the edge of the track, so the white line's the edge of the track. As long as two wheels are still on the, on the track, what's the problem? Um, and now they're getting into this stupid thing of oh well there's not an advantage to run off there well why are the drivers going out there then
0: no. exactly if,
3: if there exactly. wasn't an advantage the drivers wouldn't do it um, I'm saying that because I would do it if it was an advantage so. <laughs> given your uh, given your role
1: in Alpine and how passionate you seem to be about it at the minute is there any plans for you to return to the paddock anytime soon
3: I'd, I would love to um, if anyone's got a job out there for me yeah yeah uh, yeah it's 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 tough um obviously covid's changed a lot of things uh, with people's um racing programs and, and everything you know manufacturers uh treading on ice a little bit and mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's made it hard um but there's there's plenty of drivers out there in in my position and there's plenty of drivers kind of younger than me coming up and plenty of drivers older than me trying to trying to find places as well so it's yeah it's a tricky one um in a sport that's very uh, money-driven, it's it's hard when when there's you know people bring sponsors or personal money, uh, manufacturers funding things. It just it just becomes a, a real hard moving target. It's it's very different to other sports in in that context. Who
2: who do you who do you think maybe that's just come into F1 in the last year or so? Um, Who do you think's really got that spark? You know, the next Verstappen or the next Lewis? Who would you say? (sighs) Um, Probably no one because they're not Jordan King, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. There you go. That's my answer. Okay. Got it. Nice and simple. Um, if I was to move away from racing slightly and talk about your work with the Birmingham Children's Hospital which you do a lot of fundraising for can you sort of tell the listeners and us why that's so close to your heart and some of the work that you've done with them
3: yeah so uh, do you want the long story or the short story
0: the long story story, the detailed nitty gritty long story
3: Uh, well we'll we'll take out some of the, the details but uh, when I was 11 years old, um, my mum noticed a lump on the side of my stomach. Did I say 11 years, 11 months? Which one, I can't remember which one I said. 11 months. I was When I was 11 months old, whichever one I said, uh, 11 months old, my mum noticed a lump on the side of my stomach, um, and it was cancer. It just so happened, the cancer that I had, uh, the best, there was two specialist places in the world that, um specialized in in the cancer that I had. One being in America and the other one being in Birmingham. So luckily for me, it was only 40 minutes down the road from where I lived. Uh, and it was Birmingham Children's Hospital. So yeah, within, I think it was 24 hours, might have been 48 hours of uh, noticing the lump. The, uh, I had an operation, had it had it all cut out, a um, bit of chemotherapy and touch wood and all that. Uh, it never never came back. Um, so, yeah, that would have been what 26 years ago, just over 26 years ago now. Um, I still stay in contact with with the hospital quite a bit, as you mentioned. Uh, actually, the consultant, uh, Dr. Bruce Morland, who was the guy that kind of uh, guided myself and, well, yeah, had to at 11 months old, but the parents through the process uh i still you know stay in contact with him um on and off and he's come to a few of my races Uh, he's he's been to silverstone a few times so you know that's quite a quite a cool um cool thing to be able to have have done um i suppose for him as well to notice kind of his lifetime achievements we're talking about achievements if i'm sure there's very little time as a doctor you can see the final results and uh and the gratitude for things. So yeah, so that um, that's quite a uh, quite a special one. I, I still don't know who did the operation. Um, I've been told he lives down in Cornwall. I think that's what I've been told, but I don't know his name. So anyone out there that operated on a, a small boy for a Wilms' tumour uh, 26 years ago wants to to get in contact, they can. Um, so, so, yeah, any, any kind of fundraising I do, I do for them. Same, my parents. You know, my dad's raised uh, a chunk of money uh, for them over the years. Um, I try not to be too public with it because I'm not doing it for my own recognition. Uh, but obviously, it always becomes a bit of a topic of conversation. And I do lean on... Uh, yeah, contacts and and what I'm doing to try and raise money so there is a bit of a, a shameless plug in there a few times but but I yeah I try not to kind of take it as it's it's me doing it rather than just I'm doing it for uh, yeah for the hospital um but yeah over the That's years nice. i've I've probably raised about twenty thousand pounds so um so a decent uh, yeah a, a decent total so far
0: That must be so nice for you but so nice for the doctors as well because obviously they operate, see thousands of people a year most likely but very few occasions do they really get to see their work in a few years' time and what it's done and what it means to you. So that must be quite rewarding for them to sort of see this little boy that they had. I I assume so. Yeah,
3: I I don't know. Um, I think they do stay in contact with quite a lot of patients. Um, You know, one from... Uh, you know, development standpoint. I know I I was still going into the hospital quite regularly. I didn't get fully um, kind of the all-clear until about 12, I think, I stopped going to the hospital. Uh, you know, it went from being, I was in there kind of every day through to like once a week, once a month, once every six months, and then it was every couple of years. And then by the time I was you know, 10, 12 years old, there was, there was no more to be done. So... Um, I think they do still have a bit of a connection, but I have no idea what other patients have gone on to do. What, you know, it, there's always a strong connection. Whenever I've done any uh, fundraising, it's amazing how many people come out of the wood- woodwork that have a connection to the hospital. Um, whether it's you know friends and extended friends, or just people you meet down the pub, we'd be like, oh yeah, you know, I I know someone that's either there or is going there um you know their actual catchment area i i, I won't attempt to say the numbers because i'll get it wrong but you know their their catchment area is way larger than something like great ormond street um and the amount of patients they have is you know way larger as i said i can make up saying this five times or whatever but i can't remember i did get told the numbers uh once um because it's so central to the country you know they get such a bigger catchment um because they get everything up you know up north in manchester and new york and and then everything all the way kind of down to london and uh yeah that's why i think it's so connected to so many people and they're always trying to raise more funds because of it
2: well, I think I think it's a it's an amazing cause, and it's uh, it's a bit it's very touching how you're still in contact as well. Um, I, I think there's something very special in that. Can you tell us then, Jordan, what's next for you? What what are we going to see over the next few years? I know that's almost like talking about a time machine um, with the world that we're in at the moment. But but what, where can we see you now, and where can we see you in in the next few years?
1: Uh, well,
3: I uh, mentioned um, Formula One development stuff on their sim uh, for Alpine. And then Mahindra being the development role there, you know, they're, they're pretty full time, uh, full time things. So I doubt there's going to be much development through the Alpine side of things. They've got an academy. Um, I'm kind of on the other side of their academy, being the lofty age of 27 now. Um, and then uh, the Formula E stuff, there's, there's potential to grow there for sure, um, whether it's with Mahindra. Uh, I don't know that's you know how long's a piece of string um I'd love to get back into IndyCar you know working quite hard actually to try and get some sponsorship and and even if it's just to do the Indy 500 again we'd, we'd love to be able to do it uh but again that's a you know that's a moving target constantly um more than likely is one endurance you know that's that looks like it's growing it's going to be a a good championship with this new hypercar and lmdh uh link up they're doing with imsa and WEC. so there's potential there for for something but again it's finding the right door um knocking on a lot of doors i just don't have the key at the moment to open any of them uh so yeah i really can't tell you where i'm going to be um Racing wise, but yeah doing plenty of coaching as well for some young drivers which is quite rewarding to see them develop as they come through uh, and doing a bit of commentary for f1 tv so between all of that I'm actually uh, yeah pretty flat out just yeah just need a, a nice manufacturer to to let me in.
2: Well, if you've ever got some spare space on the car during the IndyCar, we'll be happy to put our logo on there. I'm not sure how much money we can give
3: you in return, but we'll, if you need to spare a spare spot. We, we, we can try and do a like GoFundMe campaign and see how much we can get to. It's not a bad idea. It really isn't
2: a bad idea. Um, where can our listeners uh, find you, follow you, and
3: um, follow the world and the journey that you're on? Well, I'm not the greatest on social media. Um because I'm just not. I haven't <laughs> got enough. an excuse. I'm just not very good at it. I uh, just busy doing other things. Um, but no, across uh, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, I'm 42 Jordan King. Uh, I have actually managed to dig up some content this week, so you might be in a treat. Uh, and actually get get a bit of content for once. Um, so yeah, that's that's um, I suppose the big three, I'm not quite cool enough or young enough to be on any of the others like TikTok or, or anything like that. Um, I'm, and not, I'm old. No, I yeah, don't so even know what TikTok go, is either. Don't yeah, worry. Exactly. <laughs> um, and then I've got my website which um, probably is very limited stuff on it other than my social media posts at the moment um, as a lot of the stuff I'm doing I can't talk about because it's uh, yeah, mm-hmm. all, all behind closed doors. Um yeah, so that's that's about it, really. Okay.
2: And, and it wouldn't be right to let you go because we are on an F1 podcast. I, I mean, we will let you go, but without asking, um, as an insider, as a true racer, um, who's going to win the Drivers' Championship this year in F1 and who's going to win the Constructors?
3: Uh, Lewis Hamilton and Mercedes. I <laughs> <laughs> that's a tough one. Can't, can't argue with that. Dan Cry. Yeah. No, no, for me, Lewis. The last few years has been exceptional. You can't you can't deny actually what he's what he's achieved. And people saying the Mercedes car is great, which it is, but they need to shut up really because he's doing a really good job. <laughs> and that's coming from a driver that normally would not want to give anyone credit, but he is doing a very good job. And um, I think you can see that even when he's up against it, the, they find a way. And, and not just him, the way he is working with. Mercedes and how they gel together um, is is really impressive. You know, it, I think it's one of these times that you see, I think it was, was it the class of 96 at United where they won everything? And now people talk about that being the moment, you know, when, you know, my dad always used to talk at, you know, when we were go to a, a game or something and say, you know, a sportsman at the height of their pomp. And that that expression definitely comes into into play. Um you know, we saw it with Usain Bolt where no one could touch him. Hmm. Um I saw it come up actually on Instagram today Jonathan Edwards's birthday. Uh and you know, he still holds a world record. Like it's you get a moment in time in in particular sports where uh it just they look like it looks easy they can't do wrong, we're actually they they're just doing a fantastic job. We saw it the weekend they thought all their cars had been covered and they pulled out the ace at the end. And yeah, he's he's shown time and time again that he can do it. Uh, so, you know, Max is very good, clearly very quick, but he's not putting it together. No. You know, he, he should have won three races so far this year um, and he hasn't. So if not, he probably should have won four this year and he hasn't. Uh, I've got one question for you. Should Bottas have got it out of the way earlier? Uh, I th- I think so, um, but <laughs> as it happens, it doesn't matter. No, I don't because <laughs> he got he got him anyway. But also, I actually quite like Mercedes that they don't ever explicitly, you know, give the actual team orders. You know, yeah. back in the day with Ferrari with Schumacher and Barrichello, it'd be like lap two of the race and they're like, oh, move over, you know, crack on, where they kind of let them race out and it's only if they really need to. We saw it was sort of in Hungary where they said, oh, Valtteri, can you let Lewis have a go? And then he let him pass back on the last lap. Uh, you know, I think Valtteri made it a little bit difficult. He knew, it wasn't like they're on the same strategy. They knew, um, I think from, if I was running the team, I'd be a bit like, come on, Valtteri, you're on a completely different strategy. All you should have done was just once he was there, you didn't have to back off the lead path, but once he was there, just lose yourself five tenths of a second, where the move that actually happened, it was a half-hearted move that almost looked like they were going to crash. Yeah, um, yeah. I just think that that just <laughs> looks a bit silly, really, for everyone involved, that they should have just solved that a bit earlier um, because it wasn't like they were racing each other either.
2: Mm. And Do you think 2022 reg changes are going to bring some more
3: spice to F1? Um, I hope so. I do hope so. But I'm not convinced they will because the level of downforce these cars have got. If you want to to watch really good racing, go down to your local kart track and watch a bunch of 10-year-olds drive around. It's the best racing you'll ever see. (laughs) And they're nose to tail, and you have 30 cars literally pushing each other around. So if you want to watch good racing, go and watch a karting race. And they have no downforce and no power, but loads of grip. As soon as you start adding downforce into it and the level of downforce they've got, unless you introduce artificial things and kind of arbitrary overtaking scenarios and devices, it, it's always going to be tricky. Um, yeah, re manage it, but purely from the basis that everyone's trying to save fuel, so it's a game of chess. You Know whenever you play chess, you're happy to lose a pawn as long as you still got your queen, for example. But as soon as you lose your queen, it's getting and, and that is what formulary e is. You know, it's how many pawns can you sacrifice and still have your strong, strong players left at the end. And you see the drivers that use their queen and stuff a bit too early, and they struggle. So that's a completely different, different aspect, but creates really good racing. And actually they're on circuits that you would think no one can ever overtake on. Um when you get to a pure form of motorsport like Formula 1, where it's just as we would remember it for the last 100 years, you know, break, when the brake zone is 50 metres, you try and brake 10 metres later, you've got to suddenly take, you know, a good 20% of the brake zone out of it. It's not, yeah. you know, like in karting, you can overtake someone from miles back, because you can only, you can take 20% out, but 20% over 100 metres is completely different. Um... So, yeah, I I think it should make a difference in theory with the aerodynamics, but I'm not convinced it will. Um, And I don't think it needs to, to a certain degree. As long as it's exciting, I think they can do it in different ways. They've got DRS now. I don't think they need to go too stressed. If they do pit stops, you know, with this sprint race that they're, they're trying to introduce... I think, actually, it's not the stupidest idea in the world, but the way they've executed it, I think, is terrible. Because if you actually had it as you finish the race, as you start the race on Sunday, um, maybe introduce refueling or not, but if you have to start the race on the tyres you finish then if you're out of the points you might get someone go actually i'll just pop in whack a new set of tires on with three laps to go yes i might lose a couple of places but i've got brand new tires and then the guys going for the championship you know mercedes they'll still want to take the 10 points for the win or whatever it is um they might not go for those extra pit stops, go for the tyres, they get the points, they then start pole the next day, they've got a bit of advantage on the car and track position, that they might be able to get to the first pit stop without the other guys overtaking them, for example. But it, I think it just adds a whole new dynamic that actually maybe the middle field, as we see, the, the middle of the grid is so competitive, while well, the front is so competitive, that actually putting that element in, as we saw with tyreway at the weekend, can it was a really good race. So... Um, yeah, I think it's just trying to spice it up too much. We're actually we're forgetting what the sport is. We don't actually, end up at Bernie putting sprinklers on the track. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. But you, I think there's also you know the way you always remember the past. Like you always remember your childhood as the sunny days. I don't think I can ever remember a rainy day from your childhood, can you? So you always remember it in in golden yeah, golden yeah. tint. But actually, today, Formula One's never been as close as it has. The whole field's only separated by 1.5 seconds, which I think is amazing. 1.5 seconds separate 10 different teams all building a car itself and 20 drivers driving them around. So it's as close as it's ever been. We've got a challenge all the way throughout the grid. And we all talk about how great you know the Senna and Prost days were at McLaren. So, yeah, but they were on pole by like 1.5 seconds. You know That wasn't a competition. So we all talk about how great it is, but I actually think it's just a delusion of where your view is in history because that wasn't competitive. Yes, it, we've written a great history book about it mm-hmm. um, because it was two good drivers racing each other. But actually, throughout the grid... It was rubbish everyone else was racing for for third place and not even close to racing the third place even at the most dominance of mercedes you know you look at their win record they don't come close to what mclaren achieved that year but not only do they not come close like on the win record they don't even come close on their performance delta to everyone else on the grid
2: I think you've just made an absolutely brilliant point Uh, I really do and I hope that our our F1 fans out there are excited for what we have and what's coming because it's very easy to look at things with a negative uh, view but we, you know there are things that aren't great but there are things that are great as well Um, Jordan, I want to thank you very much for spending your time with us this evening it's been great talking to you No problem at all, thanks for having me and uh, thank you to uh, Michael and Dan as well. Cheers. Anytime. Thank
1: you. Thanks. Jordan.
2: Thank you. And Jordan, let's catch up again in a little while and uh, see where you've ended up in a few months or so and have another chat. Uh, our listeners, I'm sure, will absolutely love it. But thank you very much again.
3: No problem at all. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> Podcast Network.